Hello, I'm Nadia Singh and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series that aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing clinical trials and registries as they relate to the COVID-19 pandemic and their importance in combating the virus. To discuss this are Dr. Gabriella Moran of St. Jude's Children's Hospital and Dr. Jean Tryant with Mass General. Thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Tryant, I'd like to start with you. Many clinicians may not have access to trials, or even if they do, we want to learn from every patient, and not every patient will either qualify for or agree to participate in a trial. What role can registries play in our efforts to advance our understanding of COVID-19? First, I'd like to thank IDSA and the organizers for inviting me to participate today. Observational data registries have important roles in, under, in advancing our understanding of disease, especially with regards to novel or new diseases such as COVID-19. For many questions that we seek to answer, observational data registries are actually the optimal approach for addressing these questions. And these include um, many, many fundamental questions, including establishing the basic epidemiology of a disease, establishing which patient populations are impacted, and race and risk factors for adverse outcomes. Additionally, studies that use observational data can address questions which might be optimally answered by a clinical trial but for which a clinical trial is not feasible for some reason. And in this regard, observational studies can employ biostatistical techniques to emulate a controlled uh, clinical trial. Observational data studies can also assess long-term outcomes and observe real-world populations, both aspects that clinical trials are not able to achieve. And additionally, increasingly, observational studies can employ machine learning or AI methods to leverage electronic health data for large populations. Thank you for your perspective there, Dr. Triant. Dr. Marone, moving on to you now. There's a growing number of registries that have been established on COVID-19, some to capture data on all COVID patients, others focusing on special populations. Can you tell us a little bit about the current landscape of COVID-19 registries, both that are established in the United States and internationally? Thank you, Nadia. I would like also to take the opportunity to thank IDSA for inviting us uh, to this podcast and also for having this series, which is very educational and helpful for our infectious disease community. I am most uh, familiar with those registries that include pediatric populations, being that I am a pediatric infectious disease specialist. And there is a big landscape, as you mentioned, the majority of this um, registries are looking at how COVID-19 is affecting specific populations. For example, some of the registries uh, that are currently being run, some are focusing on rheumatological disorders. Uh, This is done through the Childhood Arthritis and Rheumatology Research Alliance, and they are having a global pediatric registry for this. IBD patients are also being captured through secure IBD. And then there are other um, efforts for sickle cell and other red blood disorders, both through secure SED registry out of the Medical College of Wisconsin and the European Blood Net, uh, which has, is looking at COVID-19 on patients with sickle cell disease and thalassemia. Other societies as dermatology are looking at those patients who are developing dermatological manifestations or had existing conditions, including a specific registry for hydradenitis superativa. 
And there are many other efforts looking into cancer. Um, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, the American Society of Hematology, and the COVID-19 and Cancer Consortium are all looking at how COVID-19 affects patients with cancer and how it affects their cancer therapy. I think very importantly on the critical care side, we're hearing about this discovery virus, COVID-19, from the Society of Critical Medicine. As we know, uh, especially for adult patients and some of our pediatric patients are being admitted to the hospital and to ICU. And then along with this, uh, there is the overcoming COVID-19 uh, study, which is coming out of the Pediatric Acute Lung Injury and Sepsis Investigators, POLICI, and it is funded by the CDC and will capture real-time data for 800 children and youth in looking for factors that increase, increase vulnerability to the novel coronavirus. And again, there are other efforts such as radiology is looking for an imaging registry for COVID-19 through the American Academy of Radiology and for solid organ transplants, both internationally and in the US, there are registries, uh, the US one led by the University of Washington. So as you can see, many of the different group of specialists are trying to understand how COVID-19 will affect their specific population, at least in the pediatric field. Dr. Moran, I think it's often overlooked how many specialties actually do need to come together to tackle a novel virus like COVID-19. Thank you for that perspective. I have a quick follow-up for you along those lines. Can you elaborate a little on St. Jude's registry? So St. Jude Children's Research Hospital currently has two different registries. I will begin uh, by the Global Pediatric Medicine one and then talk a little bit more about the one at, about the effort that I am helping lead with others. The Global Registry for COVID-19 in Pediatric Cancer is a collaboration between St. Jude Children's Research Hospital and the International Society of Pediatric Oncology or SIOP. And the overall goal of that is understanding not only the incidence and epidemiology of COVID-19 in pediatric cancer and transplant patients, but also seeing how that affects the treatment for their underlying disease and how will this affect their outcome overall. So that is out of the Department of Global Pediatric Medicine here at St. Jude. The other registry that I am a part of comes from the Pediatric Infectious Disease Transplant Network, or PITRAN, and this is a network of infectious disease specialists that work specifically with bone marrow or solid organ transplant. We are a subgroup of the Pediatric Infectious Disease Society, and we have been working together now for about six years. So just like the other registries, when we started hearing about COVID-19, we were interested in knowing how it would behave in the transplant, in the pediatric transplant population. This is where our interest started. And of course, most of us who do pediatric infectious disease and transplant also see other immunocompromised hosts. So we thought we should expand that to better understand it. And then we realized that the best way to understand how it affects the population of interest is to understand how it affects the whole of the pediatric population across the United States. So our registry is open to all pediatric cases of COVID-19 in the United States. It is open to all institutions. You don't have to belong to the network or to a society. And what we want to understand is who 
gets COVID-19, how do they respond to it? What outcomes, what are people treating across the United States? And always there will be a focus, of course, on the transplant immunocompromised host, but we want to make it broader and reach out to our colleagues in the greater pediatric infectious disease community and the pediatric community. Thank you for that in-depth insight, Dr. Moran. Dr. Triant, back to you. What are some of the challenges you've had in getting a registry on COVID-19 built and implemented? And how have you worked to overcome them? So we have been working since the middle of March at Mass General in Boston to develop a registry of COVID patients um, from, from across the hospital. And the registry is led by Dr. Ingrid Bassett, who is a colleague from Infectious Diseases, and the leadership team there includes um, Andrea Folks, James Meggs, John Shu, myself, and, and many, many others who have, um, who have contributed um, across specialties and disciplines to this effort. This registry combines data that is derived from manual chart review, um, along with data that are derived electronically. And then all of the data are, are extracted from the electronic health record, so we are not collecting um, any data directly from patients, nor are we collecting samples. Along the way in the past month, there have been multiple challenges that I think have resulted both from the inherent nature of observational data, but also from the rapidity with which this disease and epidemic have progressed and, and the rapidity with which we are hoping to create this registry and make it usable um, to do research. So from an overall data perspective, there's been the challenge of wanting to be as comprehensive as possible in the data elements that we're collecting, but also to move forward efficiently. Um, and in this regard, we initially uh, sought input from our, our uh, lead team and our subspecialty colleagues early on um, and created a data dictionary of core variables and decided to identify core variables relevant to um, the, the clinically relevant questions in COVID for both the manually and electronically derived variables, and then um, lock this set of variables so that we could work on establishing the registry because otherwise we would be you know, adapting our REDCap instrument um, continuously and not be able to move on and create the registry. From the perspective of manual chart review, one of the challenges has been identifying and training chart reviewers to perform the detailed review that's required on a large number of patients. And this effort has required multiple training sessions to chart extractors who really vary in terms of their background um, and their experience with the medical record. Um, and this has been done to ensure that the charts are reviewed in a systematic manner and that there's not ambiguity in the interpretation of the questions that we're asking. So from the perspective of the data that are derived electronically, there have been additional challenges with the COVID registry in that processes that we've used in the past for similar cohorts around other diseases um, were not necessarily directly applicable. So for example, um, in the past, we've developed an HIV cohort out of our institution and the, the data source that we use has a several month lag in extracting the data. And clearly for COVID-19, this lag, we, we would not have been able to capture the data with this turnaround time. So we needed to look to a different data source with a different data structure to extract the COVID-19 data. Additionally, we often use text-based or natural language processing-based tools to extract certain variables from the electronic health record if they aren't easily captured. And these can take some time to develop. So we've had to balance whether we develop new, um, you know, new approaches for new variables that we're considering, such as 
whether there's an infiltrate on the chest x-ray, for example, or whether we turn to manual chart review to obtain these data. A final challenge, I think, in, in actually thinking about our study hypotheses and not just how to extract the data, many questions that we'd like to answer are optimally answered with a larger sample size. And these include looking at subgroups such as pregnant women or people living with HIV. Um, and some of these questions at, we, we felt were not able to be answered with data from a single hospital. Um, so to address this challenge, we have turned to colleagues and have formed a Boston-wide consortium called Boston Core or, or COVID-19 Observational Research Effort, through which each of the major academic medical centers in Boston are collaborating to harmonize data elements and eventually pool data to answer clinically relevant questions. And we hope that this effort could extend beyond Boston as well um, and, and hope to identify potential collaborators across the, uh, across the country through IDSA. I would like to add, Nadia, I, I agree with all that Dr. Trent has said. Probably one of the biggest challenges is deciding, is this a variable that we really need? And taking into consideration the time of the person who is going to do the uh, data input. For us, uh, most of the data input comes from other centers and they're doing this manually. So we have to be very cognizant of this and take this into consideration and how to balance that with how much information we really want and knowing that this is a one-time chance to get this information. So putting the data collection forms together is one of the most thoughtful and challenging processes and balance, balancing what the group that is working on this wants to know. For us, an additional challenge is that because we're looking at different kinds of populations, there almost have to be group-specific questions. So the same questions that apply to solid organ transplant may not apply to bone marrow transplant, may not apply to immunocompromised host, and of course are it not apply at all to the general pediatric. So thinking thoughtfully through the groups, through the questions we want, how much detail do we ask open-ended questions or do we give the uh, data, the person who is inputting the data, do we give them options so that it's easier for them to check? And also for us, we have to take into account that many of the things we want to know may not be already there in the electronic medical records. So we have allowed variables to not be mandatory and we have had we have had to accept that some data points are going to be missing i think that is the biggest challenge of doing a registry trying to balance your desire as a researcher and as a clinician with with what is possible for institutions uh, putting in this data thank you dr moran for weighing in there i'd like to ask you another question how can healthcare professionals caring for COVID-19 patients get involved in participating in a registry if they're looking to do so? I would like to start my answer to this question by saying how incredibly grateful we are to the pediatric infectious disease community and to the pediatric community who has been collaborating with us. We uh, are currently not funded. So this is the effort of institutions across the country that are putting in the time to enter this data for the greater good of our community. Anyone once, uh, that can join, can join us. Uh, we have a website. It's uh, www.pedscovid19registry.com. And it is also available 
in the IDSA directory of COVID-19 registries. Any uh, clinician and institution can go there. Uh, we have the materials um, that you can present to your IRB. We have the IRB approval. Uh, we have a data collection form and our emails so that you can contact us and we can help you through the process. Ideally, the more clinicians across the country that can contribute to this uh, effort, the information that we will uh, get will be so much better. As they report their cases to the registry, it will develop a more representative picture of how COVID-19 is truly affecting the children in the United States. And we will know how this affects children how they're being treated and this can lead for us to understand what are the strategies that we need to have as a national community of physicians and scientists and how to better develop and manage pediatric cases. I appreciate your insight, Dr. Moran. Dr. Tryon, coming back to you, what should clinicians do if they are interested in setting up a registry for their own center or institution? For those who have not worked with observational data or clinical outcomes research before, I'll start by saying that this can be both a challenging but a really rewarding field of research um, because it really requires combining a knowledge of clinical medicine with a knowledge of um, clinical research and analytic techniques and approaches. It has been interesting because it really requires a detailed understanding not just of clinical knowledge but how clinical care is delivered and, and in turn what biases may be introduced um, by the way clinical care del is delivered and then how we need to interpret the data. So for example, knowing why a person tends to be prescribed medication, perhaps if, if, if thicker people tend to be prescribed medication or patients with certain risk factors can introduce confounding by indication, knowing whether labs are measured routinely so everyone should have them or whether they're measured for a reason can really then in turn impact how we interpret the data and then what, what statistical techniques we use to analyze the data. So that's just, just an introduction for those who are, who are um, you know, looking to, get, looking to get into this field. In terms of the practical considerations in setting up a registry itself, if an investigator has not worked with this with longitudinal observational data from their institution previously, it might make sense to speak with a colleague who has either at, at your own institution or a comparable one to, to assess the feasibility, the data availability, um, and, you know, and a number of factors that go into it um, you know, prior to moving forward. After this is done, I think one of the first considerations is thinking about the goals of the registry and the hypotheses that you might consider in the research. So is, um, particularly for COVID-19, where there's a lot of uncertainty in the future, is the purpose of the registry to answer one question or a relatively narrow set of questions related to a specific research interest, or is it to develop a registry or cohort for widespread use and access across your institution, or potentially, um, as, you know, as Dr. Moran was saying, to, to collaborate with other institutions? And in thinking about the registry, will this be developed to be used over the next few months, or is it something that will be considered longer term and will need to be sustained over the longer over a longer time frame? And so both the scope and the timeline of the registry will in turn impact a number of factors, including the size of the team, funding considerations, who, who you know, the, the specific members of the team. So those are important upfront considerations. With COVID, all of this is sort of working on a compressed timeline. So with at our, at our institution, I think some of this, a lot of people have almost done 
you know, in the reverse order, just, just to get things up and running. But it's nice, I think, to take a little bit of a step back um, and think about these questions, which will help with the design. Um, but, you know, a next step is to think about setting up a team. And typically, this would include, at minimum, um, a data manager or analyst to work with the data, um, a biostatistician, research coordinators, um, potentially to review manual medical records, possibly a project manager, depending on the scope, um, in addition to the physician investigator or investigators who are part of the team. Of course, as part of this, it's, it's important to think early about obtaining IRB approval and appropriate regulatory approval from your institution. Once one has thought about hypotheses and set up a team and obtained approval and the, the infrastructure to move forward is in place, um, some of the next steps include more specific more specific considerations about the data. So which population do I want to include? Do I want to include all hospitalized COVID patients, outpatients, both patients who are at risk um, for COVID-19 or been tested? Um, so establishing the baseline population is important and that will depend on what research questions are, um, are going to be addressed. Um, another question is what variables do I include? And this has, been a, this has been addressed previously in this discussion um, in terms of a balance of being comprehensive but also being realistic in terms of what can be pulled because a lot of work, go in, go, work goes into um, cleaning the variables and making sure that they're accurate. Um, next, the consideration is how the data can be abstracted. So will this be done manually with people looking in the chart and reading the medical record? Will it be electronic data pulls or will it be a combination of both? And if the data pools are electronic, what will the data source be and what collaborators in information technology or others um, will be necessary in, term, in, in terms of accessing that data um, and pulling it into a, a research format that can be analyzed. Finally, if the data are manual, who will review the medical records? Um, how will this group be selected and trained? Will this group be available in the short, medium, and long term to continue to review records? Um, and how will the data be, then be recorded so that it can be in an analyzable form? So a, a lot of these are, um, are detailed, but are important in, in figuring out, um, you know, what members of the team will be included. Um, and I think it's also important to think about opportunities for collaboration across institutions, as I mentioned before, um, and how collaborative uh, efforts might enhance your own data and, and other colleagues' data um, and the ability to, to really answer the most clinically relevant questions. Having the capacity to be flexible and to pivot when needed, especially in a situation as we're facing currently and in the current research landscape um, can be really important. Um, but, but taking the time and energy to think about all of these questions and working to generate a registry, um, I believe is an important contribution both to one's own institution um, and to our overall understanding of COVID-19. I completely agree with Dr. Tryant. These are all the necessary steps that you have to go through and think through. And one thing that you mentioned, Dr. Tryant, and I agree is clarity of the variables. So one of the things that uh, has we have been challenged with is a variable seem very clear to us, but when you put it out, to uh, other institutions or to other people, uh, you have to make sure that it means the same thing across the board. So I think another thing that we have learned to do more when we do registries or this kind of research is to have a data dictionary where we have these definitions already set up so that we can answer the questions uh, from other people entering the data. 
And one other thing, depending on the kind of registry that you are putting together, is thinking about data visualization. So for uh, our US COVID registry, one of our objectives is to have a public-facing uh, website where we can show the community what is going on in these cases in a way that is informative to them. So we had to carefully consider not only what data uh, to show so that it is, does not become overwhelming, but at the same time is useful to uh, the pediatric and pediatric infectious disease community that is looking at this, and also uh, how to do it, what platform to use, how will that communicate with the platform that you're using uh, to collect the data. And I just want to say that REDCap is probably one of the tools that has been most useful to all people doing registries at this time of COVID-19. I, I believe most of us are using that as a platform and it is an incredible way to collect data across institutions. And lastly, as you said, Dr. Triant, the ability to be flexible because we started in our registry with the first seven-day survey and so many things have happened from that survey to our follow-up survey in pediatrics, including the new inflammatory syndrome that we're seeing in pediatrics. So then we have to pivot and see how do we readdress these questions, ask new questions, or look at our data differently. So flexibility is a big part, particularly when dealing with novel infections or novel viruses like COVID-19. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Moran and Triant for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on the evolving pandemic. I'm Nadia Singh.